0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The publishers of Emma Maris' book Rambunctious Garden say that a paradigm shift is roiling the environmental world. For decades, people have unquestioningly, unquestioningly accepted the idea that our goal is to preserve nature in its pristine pre-human state. But many scientists have come to see this as an outdated dream that thwarts bold new plans to save the environment and prevents us from having a fuller relationship with nature. Emma Maris argues that it's time to look forward to create the rambunctious garden, a hybrid of wild nature and human management. We're going to talk this hour about the remote national park in Peru that Tamaris wrote about for the National Geographic. We'll talk about so-called uncontacted peoples, how we define nature, what nature means for children, and new conservationists versus old conservationists, and much more. Emma Maris is based in Klamath Falls, Oregon. She writes about nature, people, food, language, books, and film. She says her goal is to find and tell stories that help us understand the past, take meaningful action in the present, and move toward a greener, wilder, happier, and more equal future. Her stories have appeared in the New York Times, Slate, Orion, Discover, Grist, and Nature, where she worked as a staffer for several years. She has a master's in science writing from Johns Hopkins University and joins us now from uh, Oregon. Uh, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: We Appreciate you uh, being on. Uh, I, I loved your uh, recent article in National Geographic. Really took me to, uh, is it Manu National Park in, in Peru? That's right, yeah. Uh, I want to talk about that as we go along and, and just the, the, the romantic notion of uncontacted peoples. And there are people's uh, uncontacted and contacted living in that national park. I want to talk about the concept of national parks and uh, and are they good for the people living there, um, and are the people living there good for them? But I want to start with Rambunctious Garden. I wonder if you have your book with you.
1: I do. I found a, I found a copy somewhere uh, okay. on my shelf.
0: Okay, published in two thousand eleven. Uh, well worth a read. Um, this would be the. I wonder if you could read me the first uh, three paragraphs from the book.
1: Sure. Um, We have lost a lot of nature in the past 300 years, in both senses of the word lost. We've lost nature in the sense that much nature has been destroyed. Where there was a tree, there is a house. Where there was a creek, there is a pipe and a parking lot. Where there were passenger pigeons and stellar sea cows, there are now skins and bones in dimly lit museum galleries. But we've also lost nature in another sense. We've misplaced it. We've hidden nature from ourselves. Our mistake has been thinking that nature is something out there, far away. We watch it on TV and we read about it in glossy magazines. We imagine a place somewhere distant, wild and free, a place with no people and no roads and no fences and no power lines, untouched by humanity's great grubby hands, unchanging except for the season's turn. This dream of pristine wilderness haunts us. It blinds us. Many ecologists spend their lives studying the most pristine places they can find, and many conservationists spend their lives desperately trying to stop wilderness from changing. We cling to fragments of virgin or old-growth forests, to the last great places and the ever-rare intact ecosystems, but they slip through our fingers. Like slivers of soap, they shrink and disappear, and we mourn. We are always mourning because we can't make more of such places. Every year there are fewer of them than the year before
0: that's uh, yeah it's impactful idea uh, the, the this idea that we have we're mourning and and this idea blinds us uh, you go on to say the nature is almost everywhere it, you know it could be in your backyard it could be uh, out there in a national park but wherever it is you say there's one thing that nature is not it is is not pristine
1: right and and I think that you know, I think a lot of people working in conservation and working on the ground, and and especially people who live out in uh, the countryside and are not living in New York City, this is not news to them that there aren't really places that haven't been changed by humans. But I think at a sort of a na- you know national level, this is news to some people. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, and that uh, it, it's it's a paradigm, right? It's it's a way of looking at uh, at, at nature. So you, you say this book, Rambunctious Garden is about a new way of seeing nature. So what, what is that new way of seeing nature?
1: So it's basically just a big expansion of what counts as nature. So I grew up in Seattle, and, and I was very snobby about nature as a young person. Um, Old-growth forests sort of counted, but if it had been logged over and regrown, well, I wasn't sure that that really counted as nature. Um, and I've just really come to expand my definition quite a bit. Um, You know, yes, those kind of fabulous places that we really focus on and we we see sort of in nature documentaries are are clearly nature. But so is that second growth forest. Um, So is that um, the edge of the farm, um, the, the lot out behind the big box store, the backyard, the city park. Those places count as nature, too. We manage them a little bit differently and we look for different things from them, but they aren't ruined. They aren't completely out of the category.
0: Um, you talk. This might be a, a good way to to talk. We'll loop back to the to the book. Um, you're an advocate for getting kids into nature, um, and and in fact, the headline for a recent article in Slate: "Let Kids Run Wild, Build Forts, Pick Flowers. Nature Can Take It." I want <laughs> you 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 talk about a gentleman who, um, I guess, he was working at a state park. Uh, Matthew Browning. Mm-hmm. Matthew Browning. That that was a story that that, that touched me, and he he. Uh, he talks about observing another ranger explaining to a young kid that you can't take these rocks home. Um, right. And and he got mad about that. It stuck in his cry. He said, "What, what this kid? He came out excited to to be in nature, and what he's going to take home is, uh, you know, I got trouble in nature."
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I think you know, there are certainly lots of places that are very fragile and that you wouldn't want everybody taking home a rock, uh, you know, pe- piece of petrified wood or, uh, uh, you know, some places. But there are other places that are that are pretty tough and that aren't as special and fragile. And what I'm really advocating is that, uh, that we first would be realistic about how much uh, sort of kid abuse our parks can take. And second of all, that we take our kids to some of these less Uh, sort of crown jewel type places that we take our kids to places where they can take home the rocks and the pine cones and climb the trees and, and make forts. Um, Because I really feel like that sort of tactile interaction with nature is really what creates that bond. Um, In my experience of, of, of of being a reporter writing about the environment, I talked to a lot of environmentalists, environmentalists, conservationists, wildlife managers, all of them in their childhood. Spent time fiddling around in the woods or fiddling around down by the river, building forts, fishing, climbing trees, Um, and they weren't just hiking on a trail with their hands in their pockets and taking nothing but pictures. They were really much more interactive, Hmm. and I think that's what we need to allow our kids to do: is be interactive with nature.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking we're talking about uh, this—you know, different ways of seeing nature, different ways of experiencing nature. In some ways, some of us see nature as, as a museum right you got to be right. polite yeah. got to not touch anything got to you know
1: this summer i took my kids on sort of a national parks tour cuz it was the 100th anniversary and then you know they they enjoyed it but really the places that they enjoyed more were the campsites that we stayed in outside the park where they didn't have to be on their best behavior where where they did where they were able to create little fairy houses and ramble off trail and kind of get involved with uh, the nature they are slightly less interested in these spectacular vistas than we adults are, and a little more interested in the very small scale bugs and lizards and and uh, you know shells and and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I mean I love going to these museum like national parks. Don't get me wrong, and I'm I'm very excited that our country has this great system, and I think that we should retain it and 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 even spend more money um, maintaining these beautiful parks. But I also really see the value of places that are less um, museum-like and that we can really romp in in a much more visceral way.
0: Sort of going slate you, uh, you, you follow, uh, you know, Matthew Brown's story. Uh, he heard about, in fact, it, this, this experience affected him so much he went to graduate school apparently to study recreational use of natural areas. He heard about nature play areas in Europe. There there are nature play areas in Europe? Right.
1: Yes, well, you know, Europe doesn't have quite as much uh, wilderness as we have, and they have a slightly different relationship with nature. I think that they see, you know, their kind of default category of what counts as nature includes a lot of spaces that are much more humanized, uh, much more sort of domesticated. Um, But they also really do value having having a relationship with nature, and because it's a crowded continent with lots of people and lots of development, they have to make a special effort to make that happen. And they do. They they sort of set aside these places for children, um, often in conjunction with a school, uh, where they're allowed to climb the trees and 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 rip off the branches if if they <laughs> if they feel the desire to, and and build forts and and uh, make their own little trails through the wilderness or through the you know through this little woods. Um, and, and what's, what Matt was really interested in, in checking out was how, you know, if you let kids do whatever they want, if you let them do their worst, how destructive are they really? Um, so he spent a lot of time sitting on rocks with a notepad watching children play in the woods, essentially, and sort of noting how much they compressed the soil and how many branches they broke off and these kinds of kind of, you know, uh, measurable metrics of, of kids beaten up on the woods. Um, and his conclusion was that, yeah, sure, if you have a ton of kids on a small area, they will certainly hammer it, and they they will they will compress the soil and whatnot. But they're really not that destructive. Hmm. Um, and you can have kids playing pretty hard in the woods for a pretty long time before you start to see any real um, signs of degradation. So what I end up calling for in that piece um, is that you know. Where where there are national parks or, or or protected areas that are that people love to visit that are big enough, why not set aside a little area for this kind of play? It doesn't have to be big, and it doesn't have to be the most spectacular area or the one with the best views. But why not set aside a little area so that at the end of the hike, after the parents and the adults have gotten their sort of dose of the grandeur of nature, uh, they they can sort of sit back and relax and let the kids. Run around um, and really touch
0: nature. Hmm. That, that's how you'd balance leave no trace, I guess. And, and in the article, I'm not sure if this is you or Browning says this. I'm not suggesting we let kids skateboard on the arches at Arches. That was a nice, that was a <laughs> right. nice image, by the way. brings it brings it home to Utah here. Uh, so, so right. these would be these would be separate areas.
1: Yes. I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, I, yeah, I definitely want to make clear that I'm not suggesting that we open up everything to everything. You know, um, certainly there's already been a lot of very thoughtful thought about what the rules should be. Um, but I do think that that the sort of leave no trace ethic has become so broadly applied to so many different landscapes, some, some of which don't need to be that careful, carefully handled, some of which don't have such high rates of visitation or such fragile vegetation that they couldn't just take a little bit of... And, and one, one other thing that I, that I think is interesting is that we, as users of natural spaces, sometimes we are so well-trained to stay on the trail and leave nothing but footprints that we don't, um, we don't take advantage of, of the areas where we are allowed to go off-trail. And I, I remember once myself uh, with the kids going off-trail at some state park in Missouri and where we lived at the time, and my husband getting very nervous Thinking that we were going to get in trouble for leaving the trail, but when we when we got back to the parking lot, you know, it clearly said in the rules that there was no problem with leaving the trail. So it's not just uh, the way that the managers of these spaces have perhaps been a little bit too restrictive. I think we also have trained ourselves to think of nature as something that's so precious and rare that we don't. Uh, sometimes we 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 uh, restrict ourselves.
0: Mm. This, before we leave this uh, topic, I, I wanted to veer just uh, briefly into uh, the general topic of, uh, I could use the article in The Atlantic, which is linked to from your article in the Slate, The Overprotected Kid. It's an article by Hannah Rosen. We've had an episode or right. two on this program uh, about that. Um, and, and the two are kind of linked up. We'd, I think that and parenting styles ebb and flow, but there has been a, a strain of parenting where you... Or you don't let your kids, you know, run wild in the woods.
1: Yes, and I think they're definitely connected, and they're definitely both potentially problematic for not only, um, you know, our children having pleasurable childhoods and well-rounded lives, but also for the future of nature conservation, because if if there's a whole generation or two of young people who don't have much experience with, uh, you know, making little boats and floating them down the stream or going fishing, or uh, climbing trees you know are they going to be completely checked out of environmental concerns as adults that's something I'm very worried about um, and and I definitely think this is a real effect I mean I I mean I'm almost 40 and I have a friend who's about 10 years younger than me who was never allowed to climb trees as a child um, <laughs> and has basically gotten to the age of 30 without ever having climbed a tree and I and I know ecology professors who um, have a standard form that they have their students fill out for their field ecology courses, um, and one of the questions they ask is, are you allergic to bees, so that they can be prepared with the correct number of EpiPens when they go into the field. And more and more, his students don't know whether or not they're allergic to bees, because they've made it to the age of 18 without ever having been stung by a bee. Um, so I think that, that there is a real issue here, and I think that it is difficult to to have those kinds of magical experiences in nature with your parents hovering right over your shoulder and telling you that everything you're about to do is a dangerous bad idea. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think that's a real concern and I I myself as a mother have struggled with how to push back against this against this tide against this cultural norm.
0: There there's probably even even, you know, that you're you're preaching this gospel and, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are agreeing with you as a mother mother though is there a, you know, there's the protective side that uh, maybe you're worried about your kids running wild in the woods.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's what's kind of you know, it's it's perhaps a little embarrassing to admit it, but I I, I will and, and, and to uh, get the conversation going is that sometimes I won't let my kids do something, and it's not because I think that they will injure themselves or or be in danger. It's because I just don't want to deal with the other adults coming down on me for letting the kids do it. You know, (laughs) I'm Mm -hmm. I'm more afraid of other parents getting on my case than I am of my own children coming to harm. Um, So I think that that's that's a sign that this culture has gotten a little bit crazy. Mm. Um, And I think that one way we can all push back about against this is if we uh, talk to the other parents on our blocks and in our neighborhoods and uh, have conversations about how this has gone pretty far. And try to try to kind of change the social norms in our neighborhood.
0: Uh, um, but I was just going to ask have you have you gotten that peer pressure, eye rolls, dirty looks? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. I
1: uh, you know I have a, a son who's four years old, and uh, I was letting him ride to the corner of our block and back on his bicycle. Um, and our neighbor came down to give me a lecture that this was this was irresponsible that I was letting him too far out of my vision. So yeah, mm-hmm. I have been, I've gotten pushback from uh, from other parents for for, for, for things that seem quite uh, you know quite responsible slow you know slow slow in moves towards independence for the kid.
0: Mm-hmm. Before we leave this subject, we're, we're going to take a break. Uh, I want you maybe to go back to your childhood. I you I think you said you you grew up in an era where, where you did go out and build forts, climb trees, and such.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's. Uh, I grew up in Seattle, right in the city, and uh, we were very much allowed to kind of roam around in a big pack of neighborhood kids and, um, you know, uh, come home when the streetlights come on. Um, and it's worth, you know, pointing out that it's, uh, even though Seattle has a wonderful park system, it you know, this wasn't wilderness by any stretch of the imagination, but we did manage to have some really fun, natural type experiences in these city parks in terms of sort of burrowing around in the bushes and climbing trees and finding snail shells and whatnot, robin's eggs. Um, so there's plenty of of, of of joy, natural joy, to be found in sort of even an urban neighborhood, um, especially if there aren't parents looming over your shoulder every minute.
0: Let's uh, t- take a break. We are talking with Emma Maris, um, and uh, we're going to uh, return... Uh, with our conversation following a break. Emma Maris is uh, based in Oregon. Uh, she's written for uh, National Geographic and Nature and other publications. Her book is Rambunctious Garden. And uh, when we come back, I want to uh, have Emma Maris take us to Peru, this remote national park. There are peoples, native peoples, living in the park, and, in fact, uncontacted peoples who are are, are coming out of the, the jungle and, and uh, wanting contact. We'll talk about that following this break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members in Cafe Ibis Deli, 52 Federal Avenue in downtown Logan. Open seven days a week. Featuring a vegan and gluten-friendly quinoa and kale salad with roasted winter squash. Information at cafeibis.com.
3: Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University. Martha Hughes Cannon was a noted physician and the first female state senator in the U.S. She got a chemistry degree from the University of Deseret and attended medical school at the University of Michigan. At the Pharmacy School of the University of Pennsylvania, she was the only woman in her class. She joined the Utah Equal Suffrage Association, where she focused on mainly medical issues and is primarily responsible for the establishment of the State Board of Health. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University, providing students another perspective of current societal issues. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is writer Emma Maris. Uh, She has written for New York Times, Slate, Orion, Discover, Grist, and Nature. She worked at uh, Nature for a while. She's written for National Geographic. And uh, her book from uh, 2011 is Rambunctious Garden. And uh, in that book, she says we should give up our romantic notions of pristine wilderness and replace them with the concept of a global half-wild rambunctious garden planet tended by us. We've been talking about that. We'll continue talking about these concepts and uh, we talked about uh, another uh, concept that uh, MMRs talks about. That is, let your kids go uh, go wild in in, in the wild nature. Uh, let them have that experience that many of us had when we were younger. That will produce one of the good effects. It'll produce a new generation of conservationists. Uh, MMRs. So before we get to go to Peru, I want to uh, reference uh, an article that you co-wrote in New York Times an op-ed piece where you contrast new conservationists with old conservationists. I wonder first if you could define those two terms.
1: Well I'm not sure at, you know at this point that those terms are as useful as maybe I thought they were when I wrote that piece or that we did. Um, you know there's definitely been a discussion in conservation about what direction to go in um, with some uh, people, particularly people who had kind of came up in earlier generations of conservation. Um, really interested in continuing to focus heavily on um, kind of wilderness areas and large protected areas and really going to those sort of crown jewels and, and focusing there. Um, and then there's sort of a, maybe a younger generation or a, with a little bit more emphasis on, um, you know, they want to keep all that and they want to continue to protect those, those national parks and those big areas, but that they want to add to that Um, Doing conservation in cities and doing conservation on farms and uh, doing conservation that that also benefits people and kind of um, acknowledging the massive effect that humans have had on the planet, but uh, deciding that it's worth doing conservation in those places, too, uh, places that have been quite a bit changed. Um, So I think that the dispute has been kind of made more of than there really is. I think there's really a spectrum of opinion. Uh, and there was actually a uh, sort of a, s- a survey at one of the recent Ecological Society of America meetings on this topic that showed that there's really a range of opinions about what sort of the important uh, new tools to pick up for conservation. And, and it isn't people don't fall into quite so neatly into two camps, as perhaps uh, the media would suggest. Uh,
0: uh, and that range of conservationists, are they working together, do you think, as, as much as they, they should be or could be?
1: Uh, not as much as they should be, but but I think that there's um, certainly, I think that the healing has begun. You know, there were certainly, there's so, sort of uh, quite quite uh, pointed uh, pieces back and forth on this subject in various uh, scientific journals and in other, in other fora. Um, certainly there was a little bit of rancor, but I think that we are all kind of realizing that we're closer together on this than, than we maybe thought. Hmm. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that that, that, that there's a certainly a coming together. And I would not be a bit surprised if the recent election results didn't actually bring the group closer together as well, because um, it may be that uh, for the next four years, you know, everybody who is interested in conservation is going to have a lot more in common with each other than they are uh, with some of the administration's policies. Yeah. So um, I think that uh, con- that sort of dispute might be uh, pretty, pretty soon of, Fairly historical footnote. Hopefully, (laughs) uh, I want us all to work together. (laughs) I want us—you know—we all have, broadly speaking, the same goals. We want to stop extinctions. We want there to be lots of green natural space for people and for animals and for plants. Um, It's just minor details that are different. You know, what are the role of non-native species? Uh, Should we move species as the climate changes? Um, There's—you know—we still disagree on some of these points.
0: Uh yeah, post Nixon, is was uh, he's kind of one uh, against the trend. The Republican administrations generally, uh, you know, increase extraction and uh, relax regulations. Uh, what do you, what do you, are you hopeful the conservation will come together? Uh, as, as you've said, what what do you think the prospects are for the next four years? Uh,
1: yeah, I think I think that it's um you know I think it's it's often the case that when 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 there's a sort of a clear and and galvanizing um, uh, enemy of conservation then you get a surge of, of, of conservation activism and interest and I'm hoping to see that. Hmm. Um, you know uh, this is an odd administration the signals from it are confusing and contradictory and certainly people that I know that work in in conservation are holding their breath still trying to see what's gonna shake out.
0: You just joined us we're talking with uh, writer Emma Maris. And uh, her book is Rambunctious Garden. You can uh, pick that up. It's from uh, 2011. She's written for many magazines, including National Geographic. That's where we're going to go next. Uh, You can join this conversation several ways. You can call us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. You can uh, join us by email, upraxis at gmail.com is our email, upraxess at gmail.com. And you can send us a tweet. Our handle is at upraxess.com. Uh, So I do want to, uh, in in your recent article in National Geographic, this is uh, the best of what National Geographic does. It it really transported me to a place that I may never go. Uh, Learned a lot about uh, Manu National Park in uh, Peru. Um, First of all, tell us about the experience of getting there. That's one of the important factors. It's very remote.
1: Yeah, it was a real uh, adventure just getting to some of these villages. Um, I first flew to Cusco, um, which is way up in the Andes, and then I took a slightly hair-raising eight- or nine-hour ride down the mountain on this uh, mountain road, which they have just begun widening. um, But um, for many years, you you, you only went down the mountain on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and up the mountain on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, uh, because it was barely wide enough for two vehicles in opposite directions to pass. Um, then once I got down to the jungle, um, to the sort of edge of the Amazon, um, I uh, switched over to boat, to motorized canoe. Um, and the standard crew of these, of these uh, motorized canoes is the guy in the back uh, by the motor and then the guy in the front with the long pole. Because these rivers, the Manu and the, Madre de, the Alto Madre de Dios rivers, are, are actually quite shallow at certain times of the year. And they're just filled with with wood. They're, these these trees on on the, on the on the on the banks of the river are constantly crashing into the river, so the river is just filled with wood. So it's, you've got to kind of pick your way up the river. Um, and so we went up the river for several days until we finally reached um, the first of the villages. And then to reach the second village, we had to actually switch to a smaller canoe because it was an even shallower river. And we did have to get out several times and just kind of push the canoe because it was too uh, too shallow for us to, to all be in the boat. So, yeah, we were quite a few days away from the nearest uh, road hospital, um, you know, certainly the nearest refrigerated beverage. That, <laughs> that was one thing that I missed when I was in there for all those uh, days. Uh, I think I was in there for two weeks or so, um, very hot, obviously tropical and no, no cold water to be found.
0: You, uh, you quote one of the signs you talked to Kent Redford. He said this is biodiversity in its full glory. But you go on to say, Richard, as it is, Manu is not an untouched Eden." There's a yeah, history. And I,
1: I suppose this is what really interested me in this place. Is that obviously I'm a big biodiversity nerd. I'm just, I'm just totally stunned by. The diversity of, of this planet, and of course, so I wanted to go to a place where with sort of top marks for biodiversity. Um, but on the other hand, that that you know, I found it very interesting that it was inhabited by people and had been for uh, thousands of years. So it kind of goes to show that intense biodiversity and human presence are not mutually exclusive. In fact, in the case of Manu, they seem to get along pretty well.
0: Now, there's a the, the recent history. There's uh, you know the rubber barons enslaved uh, a, a lot of the native uh, peoples. In fact, you talked about one ambitious baron, uh, Carlos Fermín Fitzcarald got more than a 1,000 people, members of the Pedro tribe, and and uh, decimated some other tribes, and uh, some peoples uh, fled into the jungles.
1: Yes, I mean, there's a really sad history in, in not only this particular river basin, but, but all throughout the Amazon of just rapacious extraction and complete disregard for human rights and life. Um, and and this rubber boom was really the worst of humanity on display of people coming in for this rubber which was a sort of briefly spectacularly valuable and just um, doing whatever it took to get, um, including um, conscription of laborers um, and on horrific treatment of indigenous people um, and this kind of sort of like landed like a bomb in, the, in, 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 in a lot of places in Amazonia. And here in the Peruvian Amazon, in these particular rivers, entire groups of people, entire tribes said, we are we are not interested in, in uh, dealing with this kind of horrible violence, and we're going to just take off for the woods and stay there. So these are the quote-unquote uncontacted people. Many of them are not uncontacted at all. They were horribly contacted. Uh, you know, many, many decades ago and they are um that's the reason that they've decided not to join the rest of uh the you know the rest of us out here in the quote unquote civilization.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you put quotes in in the story that you know quotes and the equivalent so called around uncontacted peoples. That's because they were contacted decades ago. That's why they fled into the jungle. I guess is that why you do that?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, one thing that I learned from being there and from talking with the anthropologists and, and the local people, the people who were, you know, who speak the same language uh, practically as many of these allegedly uncontacted groups, but, but but are completely contacted and wearing t-shirts and, you know, uh, running small shops in villages and so on, is that th- th- these these uh, people know that we are out here and they, they have made a kind of a conscious decision to stay in the woods. Um, because of the horrible history that their you know grandfathers and great grandfathers had with outsiders,
0: that's an interesting history. We, you know, we don't have that in the U.S. They're, in fact, in Peru, there's a ministry for uncontacted peoples. I believe, right?
1: Right, They're and and, and I think that they are trying to do what's right. I mean, the real danger is. So, in this particular group of people that I that I saw um, when I was down there uh, in Manu. Is a group that has become um, more interested in reaching out and has begun regular contact under sort of sort of controlled circumstances with a group of people who they can speak to because of linguistic similarities. Um, and the real danger, of course, is disease. I mean, they have been uh, sort of out of out of the uh, out of the germ pool for a couple hundred years or however long it's been, and so. Um, and, and they don't have a lot of exposure to tons of diseases that originated in, in, in Europe. So when they do start to make contact, and the danger is that they'll get sick and die. And it has happened many times.
0: Hmm. What's the policy of the, of the government? If a people, quote-unquote, uncontact people, doesn't want contact, you leave them alone?
1: I think that's basically what they're trying to do. The difficulty with it is that, um, you know, I mean... Uh, all around Manu, all around the borders of this park, there is activity. There's mining. There is uh, natural gas extraction. There's pipelines. There's go- you know there's uh, cocoa grows. Um, so it's kind of getting more and more difficult to, to to sort of leave people alone. It's a very busy jungle. And <laughs> we you know we have this image I think up here in in uh, North America or or at least in the U S that the Amazon is like this endless Quiet sweep of jungle, but it's just filled with people busily making their living. Um, so it's, I think, it's getting more and more difficult to let people remain uncontacted. You have to set up special reserves and and set up special rules and prescription, you know, prohibitions on movement in order to try to do that. You can't just say don't head east from the trailhead. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, there, there's too many people in the in the forest.
0: Are there are there conflicts? It would seem to be maybe a dangerous time when a previously uncontacted people, quote unquote, uh, then you know comes out and wants to join up. Yes. with Civilization.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, it's it's very dicey in the beginning. These people come out. They, you know, they're not sure what our intentions are. And we're not sure what their intentions are. And I say our. I guess. I guess I should say the intentions of the people in these settled villages. Um, so there has been violence. There have been a few people killed. It's been really um, hard for the for the local communities to deal with these groups that just suddenly show up and 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 then you know uh, there might be an interaction that spirals out of control and then somebody gets an arrow and is killed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been very tense for the people who live in some of these settled villages um, along the edge of the territory of this group. Um, and I spoke. Um, through a translator with the mother of of a young man who was killed. Um, And and it was kind of an amazing story, a a tragic story, but an amazing story. He was killed with an arrow while he was trying to take a picture of this this person with his phone. Hmm. So, you know, it's sort of kind of modern technology and ancient technology coming together in a very tragic way.
0: This this whole idea of uncontacted peoples is a, a kind of a romantic notion. It's it's it it intrigues us, I think, because one reason is the you know the world seems to get smaller and smaller, and we're all interconnected. And yet there are these peoples who perhaps don't want to don't want to join up. They're they're out there. They're separate.
1: Yeah, and I think you know one thing. I just, I mean, I certainly felt that romantic pull. Myself, it's hard not to. And when when we ran into a group, a group of this of this un, of this you know um, isolated is probably a better word than uncontacted, this isolated group, we ran into them, we saw them from across the river. You know, we didn't approach, we didn't want to cough on them and, and get get them sick. Um, but I certainly felt that sort of frisson of of uh, seeing something exciting. Mm. But I but what I really wanted to do in the piece, and what what I think is important to do, is really put the put these isolated people in that historical context of the rubber boom and, and of Um, you know, uh, resource extraction and and all this stuff, because that's, if we see them as this sort of Edenic, you know, kind of romantic, untainted group of people living in harmony with nature, that's not really fair to them in a a way. That's sort of denying their history, The, the fact that they have a history, they aren't an ahistorical people's. Um, But it's also denying the fact that they might be, in some regards, suffering now. It's it's very possible that their great-great-grandparents were settled agriculturalists, and that they are now hunter-gatherers by necessity, not by desire, because they uh, had to flee from from the life that they knew. So it's important not to overly romanticize isolated peoples, but to, to find out what their story is, what their particular story is, and what they want, and how we can best... Uh, make that happen without anybody getting
0: sick. Let's take another break. Uh, We're talking with Emma Maris. Uh, She's an Oregon-based writer. Uh, Her book is Rambunctious Garden, and uh, she's written for such publications as Nature, Orion, National Geographic. We're talking about her very interesting article recently in the National Geographic um, about Manu National Park. Uh, After the break, I want to come back and talk about a proposed road and I was I was struck uh, there, there. I'll read quotes from people on opposing sides of that proposal, and and you could have pulled those from the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, you know, proposed roads. Uh, you know, <laughs> proposed wilderness designation in Utah. Uh, we'll we'll right. talk about that uh, following this break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Moab Area Travel Council, who champions Utah's visitation to Grand County through tourism, events, and recreation in a manner that promotes and protects the beauty and scenery of our natural environment. Information available online at discovermoab.com.
0: Public radio quiz show, Says You, is heading to Salt Lake City to herald in the holidays. For 26 years, Says You has been bringing trivia, humor, and variety show fun to airwaves across the country. Now you can witness the lighthearted battle of wits during a live taping Friday evening, December 9th. Featuring surprise local guest panelists and a meet and greet reception with cast and crew. Tickets and details at saysyou.net. Holiday programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you by our members and Dr. Scott Dixon, practicing allergy and immunology with the team of physicians at the Budge Clinic, 1340 North, 500 East in Logan. Intermountain Clinics, wishing UPR listeners a safe and happy holiday season. Information at 435-716-1820. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Our guest for the hour is Oregon-based writer Emma Maris. Her book is Rambunctious Garden. Uh, It's out in uh, 2011, well worth read. And uh, she writes for such publications as Nature and Orion and Slate, New York Times, and uh, National Geographic. And we're talking now about her article uh, this year from National Geographic about uh, a remote national park in Peru, uh, Manu National uh, Park. Uh, you can join this conversation at 800-826-1495, or upraccess@gmail.com at gmail.com is our email, and you can uh, tweet to us. Uh, our handle is at UPRaccess. So Emma Barris, um, I was, as I said before the break, I was struck by the parallels to uh, you know just about any conservation debate uh, here in the United States, including in Utah, with uh, a proposed road which would uh, speed up the trip, make it easier the trip, which you described earlier as fairly hair-raising, a 10-hour trip uh, into uh, Manu National Park. It's being proposed by the regional governor. So let me just read a couple of quotes. This is a man by the last name of Morales. I think he might be the mayor of, uh, of Diamante, which is a... A town right. along the proposed road, and, the, and the, many of the residents there are all for it. So Morales says, we have good flatlands here with loamy, dark earth. We can grow plantains, papayas, pineapples, yucca to sell in Cusco. Soon people here will have their own cars. People have warned us that bad people will come in and take our land. But we have 800 people here we can defend ourselves. I want to uh, uh, compare and contrast that with a quote you have from mauro mataki he's a school teacher in tayakome he's opposed to the road here's what he says the regional governor's lying they're fools to believe him he's making them all excited saying the road will benefit them it will benefit him and his white friends who come in and take the lumber the animals and the gold there will be nothing left for the Matsigenka people there like i said you know with some tweaks this uh, could be quotes pulled from the salt lake tribune about uh, proposed roads or wilderness in utah
1: Right. Yeah. And it's you know, I think it's interesting how people all around the world have some of these same conversations, It's uh, you know, even in uh, very poor parts of the world, uh, like uh, this part of Peru, there are people who are who are keenly opposed to to uh, putting in new roads in wilderness areas, <laughs> even the people who live in the wilderness areas. I mean, Mauro is deep in the forest. He has to take that three day boat ride to get in and out himself.
0: And you can understand both sides, right? The people in De Monte, they want economic development. They want opportunities. On the other sure, side, you, yeah. you want to preserve the, the land.
1: Yeah, and I think that there are a lot of people living in the park who feel the pull of both arguments. And and a lot of conversations I had would kind of go back and forth. I mean, they are aware that their way of life is is rare in, and a little bit special, that they get to live in these uh, villages with uh, gorgeous you know, plants and animals right there outside their doorstep that they live in one of the most sort of biodiverse places on the planet. And they, they, are, they don't take that for granted. Um, but on the other hand, um, yeah, I mean, these people don't have a lot of money. They're, they, you know, they're, they're going up and down the river uh, with, these, with these canoe motors from the 1970s, um, running out of gas halfway and floating the rest of the way because uh, of such limited resources.
0: Yeah, so that's perspective of the people who are living there, you know versus the, the outsiders. And you write about that. I want to just read this this quote and then have you respond to this. This is from Emma Morris's recent article in the National Geographic. Uh, protection of the park becomes more crucial, so does this question. Are the people who live inside it good for it or bad? And is the park good for them? Then you go on to say the Matsigenkas, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, this is a, a people here. You
1: got it right the first time. Oh, the Matsigenka, first, Matsigenka.
0: okay. Uh, Matsigenka's image of Manu, the, the Matsigenka's image of Manu, like their image of nature, includes them. Whereas Terborg, a scientist you talk to, I think, and other Western biologists come from a culture that separates humans from nature, both philosophically and as a conservation strategy, the Matsigenkas see themselves as part of of the natural order. So those, those are important questions, right? Are the people who live inside that park good for it or bad? And is the park good for them?
1: Yeah. And I think it's, it probably depends on who, you know, who you talk to and, and what particular topic you're talking about. Uh, one I focused on in the article was their, was their practice of hunting monkeys, some of whom are, in, uh, some of which are endangered. Um, and, you know, the question of whether their hunting inside the park was threatening these animals. Um, there's been some interesting research on it showing that uh, basically that they have kind of set up a system where they can keep sustainably hunting these animals for example they have a they have a monkey season um, and they only go out and hunt them when they're big and fat uh, for the part of the year where they're where they're not quite so fat they don't hunt them and so that becomes a kind of a natural uh, you know just as we have hunting seasons to protect our our game resource, they've done the same thing themselves. Um, they also use bow and arrow to hunt their monkeys, which is incredibly difficult. I went I went hunting with uh, some of the people there, so I was able to see just how hard it is. I mean, these monkeys are so high up in the canopy of these incredibly huge trees, and you know the hunters are shooting basically straight up, incredible distances at at these fast moving, agile targets. So. Ultimately, they just don't take enough monkeys to, you know, to, to, to make a permanent dent on the population. Um, as long as they stick to bows and arrows. Now, if they decide that they want to start using shotguns, what will, that would be a different uh, that would be a different calculation to make.
0: I want to um, connect up this. Uh, you talk about how the Matsigenka see themselves, that they see themselves mm-hmm. in their culture, see themselves as part of nature, part of natural order. And the we come in the West from a culture that separates humans from nature, both philosophically and as conservation strategy. I th- I think in in Rambunctious Garden you're you're trying to narrow that gap, at least how we see it. Yeah,
1: and I don't want to. Yeah, and I don't want to overdo this. I think it's a uh... I think it's possible to get into this kind of uh, discourse where you're sort of saying, oh, you know, white people are estranged from nature and all indigenous people are in this wonderful magical harmony with it that can be a little bit oversimplifying and even a little patronizing. So I don't want to overdo it. I mean, there's obviously lots of nuance here. But it is true that for the Machiganga living in Manu, they have a kind of a sense of the plants and animals and the cycle of the seasons that includes them as players. Um, and they are sort of spiritually involved in a sort of a tit for tat reciprocal relationship with the animals that they hunt and the plants that they gather. And they have ways of not only using those resources, but sort of, um, but sort of preparing themselves for and you know, protecting themselves against the spirits of these of these animals. They're all in that together in a in a way that we don't tend to have in our sort of Western U.S. type uh, lives. Mm. Um, and I do think that in a sort of a through line in a lot of the work that I do is, is trying to suggest that one way we can have a better relationship with nature is not to fence ourselves out of it because we are such horrible despoilers of nature, we don't even deserve to go there, but to actually interact with it in a much more positive way um, and to have it be a part of our lives and to acknowledge the fact that human activity has Shaped a lot of the nat- natural world around us for the past couple thousand years. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and I, I I definitely was inspired in a way by by the relationships that they had with their surroundings. They're just, you know, it was a place that, frankly, I found very. Uh, it was so different from what I was used to, and it was filled with stinging insects and and uh, poisonous snakes and, and giant caiman and and uh, it was a kind of a place where you could feel like. Nature was hostile, if you're coming from the West. Um, but they were so at ease there, and they were so at home there. Um, it was very inspiring to see.
0: Part of that, I think, is is uh, what makes us alive to nature, right? The, the, there's an element of—that's one reason I think we like wilderness, or the idea of wilderness, is is there's uh, there's danger there.
1: Yeah, and I think that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, how much of our pursuit of going into the wilderness is about sort of almost symbolically placing ourselves in danger? And, and, and uh, you know, what what are we trying to – what's psychologically going on there? Because I definitely have felt that myself when I'm hiking either alone or in a small group, and I'm in the places where there are um, – where there's grizzly bears or wolves, and there's something to that, I think. Um, but I think that's an interesting – complicated part of our relationship with nature is that we we want to feel like we are not in charge we want to feel like nature is bigger than us that's very important for us psychically and I think that when I kind of continually remind people that because of climate change and because of uh, land use change and because of species movements that we have changed nature so thoroughly that's very uncomfortable for people because it makes nature seem smaller and they want nature to seem big Um, But I guess what I'm trying to say is that even though we have influenced nature, nature is still enormous, and we can still get lost in that.
0: How do you score that, which, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners are agreeing with that, nodding their heads. How do you score that with this idea of redefining nature, how we see it, a paradigm shift, so that nature includes your backyard?
1: Well, one thing, you know, it, it sort of also depends on where you live. I mean, I think if you live in Utah, you have the luxury of 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 being able to go out to big natural areas with a fairly short drive and and experiencing that. Um, One group of people that I think a lot about are poor people living in East Coast cities who don't have the time or the money or the ability to hop in the car and get to some giant, wild, natural space. Um, And what I want to do for those people is Make it clear that there is a lot of nature in their towns, in, in their cities. You know, the, the street trees of Philadelphia, the park system of Philadelphia, the, the empty lots of New York, uh, even in Manhattan. There's incredible diversity, incredible wildness uh, sneaking around that we, do, that we don't even see. So um, I want to make sure that nature is a part of all people's lives, not just people who have the good fortune to live in Utah.
0: Um, we're about end, at the end of the uh, conversation here. You can find Emma uh, Maris at EmmaMaris.com. And Emma Maris' book is Rambunctious Garden, um, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. And uh, she has contributed to uh, Novel Ecosystems, the Science Writer's Handbook, and... Um, Also, After Preservation, many other books. You can find all of those at her website, Emma Maris. And a very interesting article I urge you to check out from National Geographic from this year about Manu National Park. Emma Maris, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking time to be with us.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was a fun conversation.
0: And I hope you'll uh, join us tomorrow. Uh, USU uh, professor, um, I'm I'm blocking on his name now, he talks about conflict uh, management. And he recently uh, gave a presentation at TEDxUSU. He will be uh, with us uh, tomorrow. Uh, Claire Canfield, my engineer, uh, tells me. Thank you so much, uh, Claire Canfield. I've been to some of his presentations. I'm so sorry, Professor Canfield. Um, So Claire Canfield will join us and uh, talk about interpersonal relationships and how conflict can be good and uh, not always bad. And we'll hear some clips from his TEDxUSU presentation. Uh, USU professor uh, Deborah Jensen joins us uh, the following day, another TEDxUSU presenter, Um, and uh, we'll have another uh, in our series of Pulitzer Campfire uh, Centennial Initiative uh, programs on Thursday. All of that coming up this week, and we hope you'll be with us for those programs. Thanks for listening today.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art at Utah State University presents Lighting the Fire, Ceramics Education in the American West, on view through December 10th. Details at artmuseum.usu.edu. Hear that? That's Way Away East Bay. They'll be joining us by playing throughout the night at our UPR
0: New Year's Eve party as we dance away 2016 and raise a cheer to welcome 2017. Food, music, dancing, friends, and more, all of the Logan Country Club. My name is Ted Twinting, and on behalf of everyone here at UPR, I want to invite you to join us at the party. If you want to make a vacation of the event, we also have special room packages at the Bob Motel and University Inn. Information on tickets available right now on upr.org.
3: I'm Ronnie Adams, the Utah Chapter Leader for the Stop Abuse Campaign, inviting you to learn more about Utah projects and people that empower during Utah Public Radio's original series, Objectified, More Than a Body. Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 during All Things Considered and Wednesday mornings at 7.41 during Morning Edition. Program listings and times found at upr.org. Heard only on Utah Public Radio.